Well, good morning. It's good to see you all here this morning, and uh, glad we can come together once again by the Lord's grace to uh, corporately worship. I'll ask you to turn to John 5. John chapter 5, we we return to this uh, passage that we've been in for a few weeks now. And here we see Jesus is defending His deity and oneness with the Father. And we see the Jews becoming very antagonistic and hateful toward Him. To the point that they are seeking his death. Jesus knew ahead of time what the reactions would be of the Jews toward his works and his words. And he told his disciples that they would be treated in the same manner that he is treated as well. So it would not be a surprise when they were persecuted Uh, like he is being persecuted. In fact, he said in Matthew 10, verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor the slave above his master. If they treat me this way, then they will treat you this way. We shouldn't be surprised when, when people hate us because of our faith in Christ, because of our walk with Christ, because of our standards in Christ. And the word, we shouldn't really be surprised that uh, at the treatment that we get, uh, increasingly, more and more now, Christians are being blamed for all kinds of things in society. And it's that's just going to continue. It has, history repeats itself, and it is repeating itself now. Nero blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome. And all through history, it's been the same. Now, the Jews have tried to discredit Jesus on every turn, and specifically on the grounds of the impossibility of his being the Son of God or the Messiah. But their arguments have all failed. And instead of debunking Jesus' claims... His testimony and the testimony of those that are witness to his deity are unimpeded. His defense is impeccable. He is connected to God. And in their evil thinking, if he is not connected to God as their thinking then the only other explanation for his works and power is that he is connected to Satan. That's their thinking. This is a blasphemous accusation against the deity of Christ, the holiness of God, that they accuse him of. And this is nothing new. This has happened before. If you turn with me to Mark chapter 3, we have a passage in Mark 3 where the same kind of thing takes place. 
Jesus is in a home and a crowd is gathering. He is teaching. His family comes. And this is what it says, beginning at verse 20. Then he went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, All sins will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whosoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit has never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Let me back up just a moment at this passage. I don't want to spend an extra amount of time on it, but I do want to mention some things because there's a lot of misunderstanding that takes place around this passage and and others like it, particularly in verse 27 when he talks about the strong man. Well, who is the strong man? Well, obviously from the context, the strong man is Satan. And he is strong. But this has been misunderstood. And many have taken this passage to, to mean or to think that we can confront Satan... And somehow bind his ability to do his supernatural bidding. That is not what the passage is teaching. This passage has nothing to do with spiritual warfare. Nowhere in Scripture are we commanded to confront Satan or to confront demons. It's true that the disciples came up against demons. And sometimes they were able to deliver people from demonic activity. And other times they were not able to. But there's nowhere in Scripture that tells us to confront Satan. In fact... If you really want to be biblical about our our dealing with Satan, we're commanded to resist him steadfast in our faith. Resist him. And he'll flee from us. Because he's not going to waste time with people who are exercising their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ when they are walking steadfastly with Christ. 
Now, what this passage is talking about is Jesus' own supernatural ability to enter the household of Satan, which is earth, and plunder his house. And how did Jesus do that? By living a completely sinless, righteous life, and by dying a sacrificial death and raise, rising again from the dead, victorious over all that Satan is and does. Jesus is the one who binds the strong man. But I want you to notice that latter part of the verse, particularly verses 28 through 30. Because that's the part that we're dealing with here in John 5. Where he says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, but whatever and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit has n- never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. They were accusing Jesus of having a demon and doing the work of Satan himself. That's the blasphemy that they were, that Jesus is talking about. So on the one hand, he says, Whatever blasphemies people utter will be forgiven, but there is a blasphemy that will not be forgiven. And that blasphemy is against the Holy Spirit, attributing to God the work of Satan. You find that blasphemy, this blasphemy he talks about, is the end result of a rejection of Christ as Lord. These Jews have rejected Christ as Messiah. They are not seeing Him as Lord. They're seeing Him as an imposter, and they are accusing Him of doing the works that He did in the name of Satan. What kind of blasphemy is that? We find other passages, Matthew 12, Luke chapter 11. Uh, Over and over the Jews attribute to Jesus the works of Satan. And that, my friends, is the end result of a life of rejection. The seriousness of this sin cannot be overstated. To attribute the righteous acts of God to Satan is first the greatest delight that Satan can have. Think about it. If Satan could take credit for the works of God, would that not delight him? Second, outside of murdering the Son of God on the cross, the greatest form of blasphemy that one can express, these Jews were attributing to to the work that Jesus did through the Holy Spirit to Satan. Jesus quickly debunks their erroneous thinking by stating that casting out Satan by the power of Satan would mean that Satan was divided and could not stand, which makes absolutely total sense. He would then be fighting against himself. Jesus' works were a powerful witness of his person as the unique Son of God, and John 
The Baptist had given his testimony as to Jesus' identity. And now in verses 36 and following, Jesus again speaks of his work with the Father and how they bear testimony to his equality with God. Follow with me, beginning verse 36. Jesus said, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, that is John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish... The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? The declaration and the demonstration of Christ's work were in perfect sync with the Father and his eternal plan. Now, this is the second time that Jesus has referred to his works being equal to and in sync with the Father's works. He has told them this earlier. Now he emphasizes it with greater significance. These works that he does are far, have far greater significance than any human witness that could come to Jesus' aid. His works far surpass those of John. And his only purpose for mentioning John was for the benefit of the unbelieving Jews that they might be saved if they believed the message that John had preached. And that message was one of repentance of sin and following of Christ. Nicodemus had it right from the very beginning. No one can do the things you do unless God is with him. God himself was approving his son by giving him these works to perform. The greatest, of course, of these works was redemption that was purchased on the cross by Christ himself, who viewed those works, Jesus viewed those works as complete. Look back at John chapter 4, verse 34. When he spoke to his disciples and said to them that at the well there in Samaria, you remember, they went away to get food. 
They came back. And this is what he said. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus is saying that he came to accomplish the work of the Father. Which was decreed before the foundation of the world, before the creation. The work he's referring to is the work of salvation. By the sacrifice of himself for the sins of his people. He shall save his people from their sins. Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. That was the work of the father. To save all of those that belonged to him. Listen. All of the elect. All of the chosen from the foundation of the world belonged to the father. They were his. And the work that he gave the son was to to accomplish was to redeem all of those from their sins. Redeem them. His people. Not every person in the world belongs to the father with regard to salvation. They're all his in creation. But there are those that belong to him, especially in salvation, in redemption. And the father gave the work of, to the son to redeem them. And the son said, that is what I came to do, to accomplish that work. The words accomplish in John 4.34 Literally means to fully or completely finish or accomplish something to perfection. That's what it means. So if you take that meaning and apply it to the work that the father gave to the son. It means that the saving or the redeeming of all of God's people will be totally and completely Accomplished by the Son. In time it will all take place. Just as God has decreed it to take place. And that's quite a, that's quite a burden off of our, our shoulders. Because we're not responsible for the salvation of or the redemption of anyone. That's God's That's God's part. What is our part? Our part is simply to give the good news. That's it. Just give the gospel. Just tell people about Christ and his ability to save them if they will believe and repent and turn from their sins and take him as the treasure of their life. Jesus used this same word in John 4, 34, accomplish in John 17, verse 4. Look look at that passage, if you would. John 17, verse 4. Now, a few years back, I forget how many years ago it was, I preached through John 17, I think about 16 or 18 different sermons in John 17. And I'm going to revisit that when we get to chapter 17 
if the Lord tarries uh, to the, by the year of 2030. Um, <laughs> I'm going to preach through it again, and, and there will be a lot more there than was last time, I'm sure. But I just want you to notice verse 4. This is before Jesus went to the cross. This is on the night that he was arrested and sent to tri- the bogus trials before per- uh, Pilate and, and Herod and the Jews. Listen, listen to what he says, verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So in 17, verse 4, Jesus sees the work that he gave, that the Father gave him to do, which was the work of redemption of all the people that belong to the Father. He sees that as complete. He sees it as finished. And finished to perfection. Now we'll see this in John chapter 6 when we get over there, and we're coming up on it very clearly. One of my favorite Chapters in all of scriptures, John chapter 6, probably equal with Ephesians 1. But Jesus sees the work here as finished. It's done. And he hasn't gone to the cross yet. So what does that say? That says that nothing will stop him from going to the cross. Satan can't stop him. People can't stop him. The Jews couldn't stop him. In fact, they aided In God's plan to send him to the cross. All that was left to carry this out was the actuality of the cross. And now, follow with me to John 19. John 19. Notice verses 28 and to 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. Now, you see the word finished? It comes from that same root word for the word accomplished. It comes from the same word. It, it's the word tetelestai. It means... It means uh, to be complete, to, to, to be complete to perfection, to, to pay, have something paid in full so there's nothing left undone. Same root word. We can, we can see from Scripture that what God planned to do in eternity past, God fulfilled in time and will complete in the future. And there's been no mistakes. There's no mistakes. That ought to set all our hearts at ease that God, what God has done in us, He will complete to the day of redemption. He will complete it. This was what Jesus was speaking of when He spoke of the work of the Father that the Father was doing through the Son. And this was what God approved of. And throughout the Gospels, the Father was in approval of His Son who was doing the work that He was sent to do. He verbally sanctioned Christ as He was baptized by John the Baptist in Mark 1.11. A voice came from heaven, it says. 
and said, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We see it again in Matthew 3, 17, John, Matthew 17, verse 5. Peter even speaks of that approval on the Mount of Transfiguration in 2 Peter chapter 1, where he, he saw the glory of the Lord and he heard the voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. There is then the internal witness of God in the hearts of those who believe. That internal witness of God, the voice of God internally, not an audible one, but an internal one, where we, we are convinced by the Spirit of God that we are the children of God. Turn to 1 John chapter 5. John speaks of this internal witness of those who believe. In 1 John 5 verses 9 and 10. Listen to what he says. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Now where did John get that? I think he got that here in John 5 when Jesus was making these statements. I don't need the testimony of men. Even though he spoke about John the Baptist, it was only for the benefit of the Jews to hear the gospel and be saved, but they rejected it. John heard this from Jesus, and he says, For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. As followers of Christ, as those who have trusted Christ for the forgiveness of sin, we have the testimony of God within us. It's an internal thing that speaks to the things of life and to the things of the world that we are the children of God. And that's why the world hates Jesus. And they hate those who follow him. Because of that witness. It resides in us because we are abiding in him. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. It's all about the son. It's all about Jesus. And what a person has done with Jesus Christ. Have they received him as the payment for sin? Or have they rejected him in unbelief? When he says in verse, 20, in verse 37 of chapter 5, when he says the Father himself has borne witness about me, the words has borne witness is in the perfect tense. Perfect tense. Which means that the action of bearing, God bearing witness happens in, happened in the past and continues on in the present. 
And it doesn't stop. God is constantly bearing witness about His Son. It is all about Him. And that's what pleases the Father. God takes great delight in Himself through the person of Christ. Because Christ is God. Now, when it says that it, the Father has borne witness in that perfect tense verb, it means that God approves of His Son from the Old Testament, and that approval continues on in the future, through the New Testament era. And so, God approved of Jesus and is still approving of Him, Because he completed the work that the Father had planned and purposed from eternity past. His affirmation of his Son is good for all time and through eternity. It never changes. There's never a time when God is displeased with his Son. He is always pleased with his work. Because it was the Father's work. And he did it to, to perfection. So now Jesus makes another one of those striking statements about the soul condition of the Jews he is speaking to. In verse 37, he says, let's see here, verse 37. <clears throat> he says, his voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen, and you do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom He has sent. This is a further rebuke of the Jews' unbelief. They provided themselves, they they prided themselves on knowing God and considered themselves the guardians of Scripture. And yet Jesus said they had never heard the voice of God and never seen his form. Now there were times in the Old Testament when God revealed himself both visibly and audibly to people. We know that God spoke to Abraham in an audible voice. We know that that uh, Christ in a in a theophany or a Christophany, came to Abraham and visited him in his tent. We know that God spoke to Moses, set him in the back of a cliff, cleft of a rock and passed by him. We know that he talked with Moses face to face as one talks with a friend. He spoke with Elijah. He spoke to Isaiah the prophet. All of these instances are those where in which God spoke to his people. And the Jews prided themselves in that. In all that the Jews had, the thing they missed was salvation. They didn't have salvation. Why? Because they didn't believe the one whom God had sent. That's it. 
And it's still true today. The reason people don't have salvation is because they don't believe in Christ. God had been silent for 400 years. And now He was speaking in the person of His Son. But they refused to listen to Jesus. He was, he was God's last and full revelation to men. And they rejected Him. And in doing so, they rejected both God and the Scriptures that He had given them. Even though they thought they were upholding the Scriptures, they really weren't. It's a wonderful thing to know the living God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And in knowing Him, we have all of the blessings that heaven affords. Just read Ephesians 1 sometimes, see what those blessings are. So the first witness that Jesus had were the works of the Father. The second was the witness of John the Baptist. The third was the Heavenly Father Himself, coupled with the works that He'd given the Son to do. And now the fourth is the Scriptures. The Scriptures that bear witness of Him. Every chapter, every verse of the Old Testament is about the Son. It's about Christ. No matter how obscure they may seem, they all point in one direction. They point to the one who came, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died for sinners, and rose again. Now, in verses 39 to 47, Jesus refers to the Old Testament Scriptures as His next source of testimony concerning His divinity. I'm not going to get all the way to 47 this morning. It's not going to happen. But we'll get part of the way in the few minutes that we have left. As I said earlier, the Jews were proud of the fact that they had the Scriptures and that and considered themselves the benefactors of it. To them, knowing the Scriptures was equal to having life, eternal life. But there, was a, there is a vast difference in knowing much about the Scriptures and letting that knowledge work within one's heart for salvation. That was what the Jews were missing. They knew a lot about the Scriptures. They could quote passages. They could explain uh, historical aspects of the scriptures to you. Uh, it was, they knew the scriptures. And in knowing, they thought or equated that with having eternal life. Now Jesus comes along and debunks that. As the 10th century English theologian stated, happy is he then who reads the scriptures if he converts the words into actions. James, what did James say? Be doers of the word and not hearers only. If a person just hears the scriptures or has a lot of knowledge about the scriptures, that is not equal to salvation. Salvation is proved by doing what the scriptures teach. By making that the rule of life. Now, the Apostle Paul talks about this in the 
in relation to the Jews in Romans chapter 9. Verse 4, this is what he says. They are Israelites, speaking of the Jews, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption. To them belong the glory. To them belong the covenants. To them belongs the giving of the law and the worship and the promises. It came to the Jew first. When Jesus sent out his disciples, what did he tell them? Go into the cities, but don't go anywhere except to the house of Israel. See, it started with the Jew. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached his sermon, filled with the Holy Spirit, who did he preach it to? It wasn't Gentiles. They were all Jews. So the first church at Jerusalem was a completely a Jewish church. It wasn't until Acts 10 that the Gentiles began to be grafted in. And I'm thankful to God that they were. For if they hadn't been, you and I wouldn't be here this morning. According to the teachings of the school of Halil, which was a school of the Pharisees, this is what they said. The more study of the law, the more life. If he has gained for himself words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. So to the Jew, just study the law, study the scriptures, and you'll have life. But Jesus says no. The Jews knew a lot about the scriptures, but they didn't have it working in their heart. And that's why Jesus said, you do not have the word of God in you. You know a lot about it. You can quote verses and chapters, but you you don't have it in you. You don't have it in your heart, in your soul. They were in the word, but the word was not in them. How many Christians today are in the same situation? They know a lot about the Bible, can answer questions, but they don't have it in them. They don't have it in their heart. What a deception. Their searching of the word had led them to think they had life. But Jesus tells them now in verse 38 that the word of God was not residing in them. How can he make such a dogmatic statement? Because he knows what's in man. He knows. He knows what's in every one of us. He knows whether we love him or not. He knows whether we have a desire to obey him or not. He knows whether the word is in our hearts. Their hopes of eternal life were now dashed because they didn't recognize him as the one whom the scriptures had spoken of. And the reason they didn't recognize him was because they could not recognize him and they would not recognize him. Those two things go together. They couldn't and they wouldn't. This is the same plight of all humanity. The Apostle Paul explains this blindness and this stubbornness in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you'll turn there with me.
Now this all will come very clear in chapter 6. All comes very clear as Jesus gives teaching about God's work of salvation and how he does, how he saves people. In chapter 6, we'll get there very soon now. Notice verses 12 through 18, 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18. He says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Remember when Moses came down from the mountain, his face shined so bright they couldn't, they couldn't even look on him, so he put a veil over his face so that they wouldn't, so that they wouldn't be blinded by the, I can't even imagine what that would have been, would have looked like. Verse 14, but their minds were hardened. Wouldn't you think that would have opened up their hearts? To see Moses come down from that mountain shining like the sun and if they can look at him, the glory of it and put a veil over your face so that we can. And then they put the veil over his face and they, their hearts were hardened. But their minds were hardened for to this day they, when they read the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, the law, the same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. So Christ Jesus came into the world. He was the glory of God. He was the one that would lift the veil. But they refused it and they hardened their hearts against him. And people are still doing that. They hear the gospel. They hate what they hear because it goes against their sinful lives and they harden their hearts. The veil is there over their hearts. This is what he says, Paul says, Israel is like to this day. Verse 15, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Chapter 6 will tell us how they turn to the Lord. You should go ahead of me and study chapter 6. And it'll be, it'll, it'll open your eyes more to what is coming. Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from the dominion or the dominance of sin. Verse 18, and we all with unveiled face, now the veil's gone. How is it gone? It's gone through Christ. Notice what he says. With unveiled face, we behold the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So as we live our lives and the veil is now removed, we can see the Lord Jesus and his word is in our hearts. He is working his word through us and outward we become more And more like Christ as we study his word, as we find what he says, and as we obey what he says, we become more and more like him. Until the day that we are exactly like him. According to 1 John 3 verse 2. 
they could not see who he really was because the veil was over their hearts. And they would rather continue in their dead, superficial self-righteousness than recognize Jesus was the way to life. And Paul writes about that in chapter 10 of Romans. Verse 2 and 3. I bear witness that they have a zeal for God. You hear that? They have a zeal for God. But not according to knowledge. What kind of knowledge? What what is the knowledge that Paul says they don't have? It is the knowledge of the truth about who Jesus is. It's the knowledge of salvation in Christ alone. That's what they don't have. The Jews still have the scriptures. They still go by the Old Testament. Even the even the Orthodox Jews Go by the Old Testament. But they don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And so it's not according to knowledge about Jesus. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, which is Christ, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They did not submit to Christ. This spiritual blindness of the Jews and of mankind in general and their their self-righteousness is 100% introspective. You can see it in people who don't know the Lord. What are they concerned about? They're concerned about number one, self. It's all 100% introspective. One last passage that I'll have you turn to, and then I'm going to wrap it up. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I've got five minutes. I'm doing good this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Notice he's speaking about um, unbelievers, both Jew and Gentile. Verse 4, he says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. That's Satan, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You can't be saved without recognizing Christ as Lord and receiving salvation from Him alone. So, notice verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves... But Jesus Christ as Lord with with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said light shine out of darkness, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. In their case, the unbelieving case, the motivation behind their unbelief was that they did not want to recognize Christ and only wanted to recognize themselves. 
The word refuse in verse 40 of chapter 5, yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. That word refuse means to feel or have a desire for something, to want something strongly. You think you have life, therefore you refuse. You strongly refuse to come to me. You don't desire what I have. And the reason people don't come to Christ is because they don't want to come to Christ. Couple that with their natural inability and you have a seemingly impossible situation. They don't want to come and they can't come. Therefore, it's impossible for them to come. But it's not impossible. Because God can overcome the inability and he can overcome their desire to, to refuse. Which is exactly what he does in salvation. Every single soul that's ever been saved, God has worked his work to overcome those obstacles. To bring his children, his people into his family. All things are possible with God. Christ can overcome the darkness And the ignorance that besets the fallen human heart and bring light where darkness, only darkness, exists. And that's the good news of the gospel. That Christ saves sinners who live in darkness. Now in verses 41 to 47, Jesus bears down harder on their unbelief and he challenges their inconsistencies saying that they are willing to receive others, but not him. Even though he had given so many testimonies of his equality with the Father, they still refused to believe in him. So we'll carry on from there next time, and I'm right on time this morning, so um, praise the Lord.